All right, so sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, something happens to me that almost seems like it shouldn't be happening, but I think it's intentional on, on, on the authors of the Bible's part. And here's what will happen to me is when I'm reading the Bible, the, 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 the perceived heroes of different stories in the Bible, even though we think the Bible is one large story, the different heroes of the different stories in the Bible, I just, like, don't like them. Like, the, the ones I'm reading some story, I'm like, well, okay, this guy's the protagonist. I'll be reading it. I'll go, I don't like this guy at all. Like, he is, he's the worst. Like, uh, take just Jacob in Genesis. Go back, read Genesis, read Jacob's story. I don't like Jacob. Like, I, if, we would not be friends, okay, in real life. And there's different, even David at times, who we're going to talk about in the series we're in eventually. I'm like, David, what is your deal, right? There's just these different people who seem like they're the protagonists of the story. And then I just can't really identify with them. I don't really like them that much. Now, the opposite thing happens to me too. In those same stories, sometimes there's an antagonist or someone that's the perceived bad guy. And I'm reading the story and the perceived antagonist, I'm kind of like, I kind of relate to this guy. Like, I kind of like this guy. Like, even part of me is kind of like, God, could you cut this guy some slack? Like, this, I, I, why is this guy the, the antagonist of the story? Why is this guy uh, the bad guy here in this story? I don't get it. Like, I, I, I find myself often identifying with the antagonist. And I, I think that happens for a couple reasons. One of the reasons is the Bible is about real people with real stories that did real things. And because of that, it, the Bible is just going to show people uh, as they were in certain ways, and very few people in the world are just 100% a bad guy, 100% evil. But I also think the Bible does that for another reason, is I think it can be very easy for us as humans to identify with and connect to the perceived heroes of the stories in the Bible, and then disconnect ourselves from the perceived antagonist in the story. And I actually think God, through the biblical authors, wants us to connect ourselves a little bit more to the perceived antagonist in the story. Like, it's almost like God wants us to see the failures in the Bible and begin to identify with them more than we would in a normal situation. Right? God, not because God wants us to walk around feeling like we're failures, but because I think God wants us to see how we're not that different from a lot of the failures in the Bible and how very often our pride, our own self-righteousness, our own looking at ourselves as good makes us think we are all very different than these perceived antagonists in these stories in the Bible. And so the Bible just kind of does this different thing with stories than what we're used to. Uh, in most movies you watch where there's a villain or an antagonist, you're probably not going to empathize a lot with the villain or antagonist. You're probably not going to understand their point of view a lot. But in the Bible, you're going to find that you do sympathize, you do empathize, you do understand, you do identify with. And that's exactly, for me, what happens today in, in this part of First Samuel that we're in. So right now we're in this series called We Want a King. And this whole series is going to look at the first three kings of Israel. And so we're in First and Second Samuel, and we'll be in First Kings a little bit, looking at these first three kings. And we've been looking at this king, Saul. 
And every time I read chapters 13 and 14, where we'll be at today, and I read about Saul's failures as a king and what kind of begins to set his trajectory as a king, I can't help but sympathize with Saul. I can't help but read these stories and go like, what's the problem, God? Like, he's trying his best here. He's doing what he can. And even there's even a part of me that goes, God, cut Saul some slack here. But I think... Saul and his story was purposely written this way so that we wouldn't do what I said we normally do, so that we wouldn't stop ourselves from identifying with Saul. I think, in fact, we should sympathize with Saul. I think we should try to understand Saul, and I think we should see ourselves in Saul. It's almost like by sympathizing with Saul, by identifying with Saul as we read these chapters, it's almost like seeing how God humbled Saul— will help us to know how God humbles us at times. It's almost by seeing how God has worked in Saul's life, it will help us to see how God is working in our lives at times. But if he was just a villain and an antagonist and we just ignored him, we, I think, would miss out on seeing how God very often works in our lives. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapters 13 and 14. And we're going to look at these these failures of, of Psalms and see what we can learn. And so the first part of the sermon, we're just going to be going through 13 and 14 together. And so I'm going to read some parts. I'm going to summarize some parts. We're going to, it's going to be a long, fun story time, all right? One of the best things about the Bible is it is full of stories, and it's inviting you into the grand story of the universe. And so I think sometimes we go, just get to your points. And I go, you know, it's good for us to just kind of be enveloped in the story. So we'll, we'll spend the first bit of the sermon just enveloped in the story of chapters 13 and 14. And then we're going to pull three things from 13 and 14 that we can learn. And, and, and really, kind of the thrust of what we're learning today is we're going to see how kind of God has been interacting with Saul. And these three things that we're learning are going to help us relate to God in healthier ways. Instead of relating to God in a lot of unhealthy ways, which a lot of us do, whether we want to admit it or not, I think the three things that we're going to learn today will help us learn to relate to God in healthier ways. Does that make sense? All right, let's hop into it. A quick recap of where we've been. Like I said, we're in this We Want a King series. So far in the series, here's what's happened. The Israelites have cried out for a king. They've seen that all the nations around them have a king, and they said, we want a king like they have. And so God and Samuel give them this king, and they give them this guy, Saul. And Saul is this Thor-like looking guy. Like he is going to be the guy that's casted in Thor 3500 BC or whatever. And so Saul is just everything you want a king. He's big, he's strong, he's good looking. He's who they want as their king. So they make him king. God really makes him king. And even we begin to see God use Saul. We saw this last week, rescuing the Israelites from danger, from different people. And so that's where we've been at the story. They want a king. They got a king. He's even doing some kingly things. But today, we're going to see what happens with Saul and that he's not as kingly as uh, God would have hoped, I think, even. So 1 Samuel 13, we won't read there, kind of like to give you a little summary of how 1 Samuel 13 starts. It starts actually with King Saul's son. So apparently King Saul has an adult son, and his name is Jonathan. And I just love Jonathan. When I read the stories about Jonathan throughout First and Second Samuel, I, or First Samuel, really, I, I 
love Jonathan. But Jonathan, he's just kind of this foolhardy, adventurous, happy-go-lucky guy. At least that's how I read him. And so Jonathan is here in Israel, and he sees this Philistine garrison, this Philistine fortress. And basically how it worked back then was, you know, there was different nations, sure, but a lot of these nations kind of operated like nomadic warlords. And they would kind of just travel in groups and take what they wanted, set up fortresses where they wanted. And so the Philistines had set up shop in Israel or near Israel at the time, and they're just taking whatever they want from Israel. In fact, they're taking whatever they want so much so that they're taking all the iron out of the land. Israel has no iron, okay? So anyways, there's this garrison, and, and Jonathan takes a little crew of guys, and they go to this little fortress, and they defeat this garrison of people. And then Jonathan comes back, and the Israelites are pretty stoked about it. King Saul, his dad, hears about it, and they're, they're like, all right, this is cool, this is great, and they kind of start gathering together. Uh, the Philistines, though, they hear about it, and they're, much, they're a bigger, more powerful nation, and they're, they're, not allowed, they're not about to let Israel keep punking on them like this. So they go and they gather a big army all together. It says in, in the beginning of 1 Samuel 13, it says they had 30,000 chariots. They had 6,000 horsemen. I don't know if they had horses. I assume so. They had, and then a whole bunch of other fighters. Shubies, just walking around, right? They had just this massive force of people facing Israel. And the Philistines gather together near Israel, in Israel, in parts of Israel. And, that, and so Israel's kind of in a bad spot. They've got no iron, as the story is going to tell us, because the Philistines have a monopoly on iron. In fact, the, what iron they do have is only in two swords. Jonathan's got one and Saul's got one. The rest of the weapons that Israel is using is just like farming weapons. And so we've got a small group of Israelites who are reacting to this battle that Jonathan had, and the Philistines, a huge group of Philistines, have gathered to, to essentially go to war with Israel. So Israel's in a type tight spot. And so we'll read uh, verse 8 where, where our story picks up with King Saul and some of these Israelite warriors waiting uh, for what to do next. Verse 8 says this, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. So King Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Okay, so we'll stop there. So apparently, before they were to go battle the Philistines at Michmash, before they were to go do that, Samuel kind of like the chief priest of Israel at the time, who acted as a judge, who made this transfer of power with the king happen, who was the voice of the Lord. He was a prophet, Samuel says. He said, hey, listen, before you go into the battle, I'm going to come in seven days, and we're going to do uh, 
some offerings, some sacrifices to the Lord together. I need you to wait for me. Don't go into battle before that. You know, a lot of times in Israel, this was a, a way to say, hey, let's make sure we're relying on God before we go into this thing that we could very easily rely on ourselves. So Saul's waiting around. Seven days come. No Samuel. Israelites are going AWOL. His army's getting smaller. He's seeing gold gleam off, like gleam off of the chariots of the Philistines into the distance, and he's going, I got to do something here. And so Saul desperately just says, okay, I'm going to do this, you know, I'm going to do this uh, sacrifice. Hopefully it boosts morale. Hopefully it keeps other Israelites from running away. And so this is exactly what Saul does. He does this sacrifice. And then it's kind of funny. It's like as soon as he's done doing the sacrifice, it's still day seven. Samuel shows up and he goes, hey, what's going on? What's happening here? And Saul goes, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm freaked out. People are leaving. I know we're supposed to do this thing. So I just, I just did this thing. I did the sacrifice. And it gets really intense, and Samuel like, gives him this like, intense punishment, and he just goes, listen, like, you're not, you, your kingship is ending with you. You're not going to have a dynasty. Essentially, he's saying, your sons will not be king over Israel. There's going to be some other guy, and, it, and, and potentially, it's gonna, he's going to have the dynasty because you did this. And it's moments like this in the Bible, that, where I was talking about earlier, where it's hard for me not to sympathize with Saul. And kind of understand Saul and identify with Saul, right? Saul is in a tight, scary situation. He knows that Samuel is coming to do these sacrifices. And so Saul says, hey, I'm just going to do what I think is right. Now, I think that Saul probably was doing it in some wrong ways. And we'll talk about that here in a bit. But I can really identify with Saul here. But there's a few problems with, with Saul's heart here. One thing, one problem with what Saul was doing here is this sort of work of making a sacrifice in that time, in that place, in the people of God, this was not kingly work. This was priestly work. And God was pretty serious at the time about priestly work. He wanted to show how holy and set apart he was, and so he had a lot of the holy and set apart sacrifice type work for the priests. And so when, when King Saul is doing this, he's essentially kind of usurping God's authority and saying, hey, now I'm a priest too. I'm not just a king like you made me, God. I'm also a priest too. So Saul's heart is wrong in that way. So uh, the second thing is Saul not listening to Samuel and waiting like he should uh, would be kind of akin to Saul not listening to God. At that time and in that place and in that particular situation, the, the, the commandment that Samuel had given Saul was a commandment from God, essentially. Like, hey, don't do this sacrifice till I come. And so Saul was essentially not listening to God by doing that. And then three, uh, Saul, to me, the sacrifice, it doesn't seem like this kind of like good-natured, faithful heart. And you can kind of see this in the rest of the story as we go on. It's not like he's like, well, we got to worship God before we go. Saul's kind of like, hey, I'm really scared. I know this kind of religious stuff seems to embolden the people. So I'm going to do this thing so less people scatter and less people run away. And so there's a lot going on in Saul that we can't see. There's a lot going on in him that's not right. And so when Samuel shows up, he's like, dude, this is it, man. This is the last straw. You can't do stuff. You, the king, like you are the last king in your line. There won't be kings after you. But that being said, I still, I can sympathize with Saul. 
This battle's about to happen. It's scary. He needs everyone to stay calm. And he thinks maybe this sacrifice will help the people set their eyes on God, have some peace. Well, uh, what's also interesting is Samuel says all this kind of warning to, to Saul. He kind of says, here's the punishment. And it kind of seems, the way the story, the rest of the story goes, it kind of seems like Saul doesn't really even care. Because verse 14 happens, and, and Samuel's saying, hey, this is what's going to happen to you. And then verse 15, Saul's like, let's get ready for battle, right? No response to Samuel. Now, I'm sure he responded. I'm sure there was something there. But I think the way that the author is writing this is trying to say, look, Saul didn't really care much about what Samuel was saying. And so Saul starts counting the men. He starts gathering the men. And in fact, he moves all the men closer to Michmash in order to fight the Philistines. And they stop. And our story picks up in 14 in the first couple of verses. And so Saul didn't really care what Samuel said. He's moved the army closer. And then here's what's happening as they're kind of waiting to fight the Philistines. Verse four, or chapter 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor... Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. Okay, let's pause there. Okay, so the Israelite armies moved closer to Philistine, the, the Philistines. And now we have a picture of Jonathan and we have a picture of Saul. Now what the biblical author is trying to do here is give us a contrast. If you're ever reading the Old Testament... A lot of times, this, is what, this will help us and understand what the author is trying to communicate. The author is communicating real things that happen, but sometimes the author is contrasting two real things that happen. So we have Jonathan, who we remember Jonathan. He's the one that started this whole thing anyways by going over to the Philistines and de defeating their garrison. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, he says, let's go, let's check out this new garrison. <laughs> like, let's go over to this new fortress. Let's just, let's just check it out, Okay. Don't tell my dad, okay? Let's let, we don't have to tell him. We don't involve him in this. And then the contrast we see is that Saul, he is hanging out in a pomegranate cave. Now, a lot of translations say he's actually hanging out under a pomegranate tree. I don't know why the ESV made this choice. I probably think it's a tree. I haven't heard of too many pomegranate caves, but that's neither here nor there. If there is, it sounds awesome. Uh, so Saul is hanging under a pomegranate tree. He's moved the troops closer and then he sits under a pomegranate tree. This is a contrast. Jonathan is moved to action, to rescue, to exploration. Saul's just sitting under a tree in comfort. So there's this contrast happening that the author wants us to see. And so then, so then throughout this chapter, we're going to see this kind of contrast between Jonathan and Saul. So Jonathan, his armor bearer says, okay, let's do it. So they go up to this garrison, and they find out that this fortress or whatever they've set up, the Philistines have set up, is kind of like at the top of a cliff. And Jonathan and his armor bearer, they're kind of in this mountain pass, right, in between two cliffs. And the Philistines are at the top of the cliff. And then we see Jonathan uh, come up with this very interesting plan in verse 6. I'm going to read verse 6 through 10. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, We'll cross over to the men, we'll show ourselves to them, 
if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we'll stand in our place and we'll not go up to them. But if they say, come to us, then we'll go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. I love Jonathan, but he's an idiot. Okay, guys? Like, uh, <laughs> he's so foolhardy. Like, if I'm the armor bearer in this situation, the armor bearer is like, all right, dude, I'm all in. And then Jonathan says the plan. If I'm the armor bearer, I'm going, hey, uh, I love the plan. I love it. I love you. I, I love your enthusiasm. I was hoping for something a little sneakier, like just a little bit sneakier of a plan. If we could rework that, that would be great. Also, like, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the, like, they have the higher ground. Like, I'm not a big fan of coming from the lower ground, Jonathan. Like, I've seen Star Wars. It, it's not going to go well. We're going to get chopped up, man. Like, I, th- that's what I'm doing if I'm, if I'm the armor bearer. But that's not what the armor bearer does. Uh, but that's what I would have said to Jonathan in this situation. So, verse 11, this, they, they, they move forward with the plan. So, both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and, and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, All right, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Okay, we'll stop there. So the plan works. <laughs> somehow even we find out there's climbing involved like straight up mountain climbing right that's where me I'd be like no I like I literally can't do this plan like I can't do this plan man and so they're 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 climbing they get up to the top and somehow they beat a bunch of guys they kill a bunch of guys they win the battle Uh, either the best timed earthquake ever happens or God makes an earthquake happen so that the Philistines start panicking, they start freaking out, they start scattering, they start running away, and then meanwhile, over at the pomegranate tree, Saul's watchmen see this, and they go, what is going, is that Jonathan climbing a mountain? Like, I don't, and also, what are they, how are they watching, you know, I don't, binocular? Like, maybe they're just putting their hands like this, I don't know, but they're seeing it, and they say, hey, Saul, like, something's happening over there. They're scattering. I think this is the time. Let's go, like, kill. Like, let's go fight. Let's go do this. And Saul's like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, you're right. Uh, let me count everybody again. One, two, three, four. And then he goes, oh, Ahijah. Ahijah. Ahijah's the priest. He goes, hey, hey, bring the Ark of the Covenant. I have this kind of Indiana Jones-type plan. I want to bring that with. Bring the Ark of the Covenant. Five. Six. And so eventually everything gets sorted out. They start going that way and they start winning some battles. And I think on the way to the battle, Saul comes up with what has to be the dumbest uh, rule, maybe ever. And he says this to everybody. He goes, hey, we're going, we're going to go fight the Philistines. But, you know, to make it extra special, to give us some more of that God power juice stuff, um, everybody's fasting today, okay? Nobody eats. And so Saul comes up with this command. He says, nobody can eat today. Everybody, everybody's fasting the Lord. As we fight the Philistines, we're going to fast. Okay? And if you don't fast, you'll get executed. Okay? So the Israelites are, man, I should have left earlier. Like, uh, but 
So they, they keep going. They start fighting. Uh, they're, they're winning the battle. They're pushing the Philistines back out of Michmash. Jonathan didn't hear this command from his dad. He's out there fighting, doing Jonathan things. And so uh, he finds, like, some honey, as you're apt to do if you're in the Bible. And so uh, he finds some honey. I've never found honey in my life. But Bible characters, is like, every day. Uh, so he finds some honey. He, he eats it. And the guys with him heard his dad's command, like, Dude, Jonathan, we're, you can't eat. We're not supposed to eat. We're, you're going to get executed. Dad's, your dad's going to kill everybody. And Jonathan's just like, my dad's stupid. Like, that's a dumb rule. Like, that's a dumb rule. Like, look how good I look right now. Like, I feel so good. Like, you could go read it. That's a pretty equal paraphrase. And so, so then, and then another crew, they, they're like, well, we're going to eat too. And so they, and they even eat in ways that Israelites weren't called to at the time. And so, they win the battle. They come back. They're debriefing. It's found out that Jonathan's eating. Saul uses some more religious actions and items to kind of uh, put this forth and, and prove that Jonathan had been eating. And so Saul is like, well, I made this dumb rule that I don't have to make, but I, I made it, so I have to kill my son now. And so Saul is getting ready to execute his son. And the Israelites, Israelites I think they're just like, boo! Don't do it, man. Like, that's like, that was a dumb rule, okay? Like, we're all good. He kind of won the battle. I don't know if you saw that part. Like, he did this stuff, all right? You, you still got pomegranate juice on you. And so, like, <laughs> this is kind of like, and so then, luckily, Saul isn't prideful enough that he goes, no, I won't listen. But Saul goes, okay, I, I, won't, I won't execute my son over this dumb rule I made. And so, this is kind of chapters 13 and 14, of 1 Samuel. And we're seeing Saul's failures start to stack up, right? Like, he doesn't listen to Samuel in the first place, which is like not listening to God. He, he seems to use religion and religious acts superstitiously almost. And I would even say he uses religion uh, manipulatively for the, to the people of Israel. He seems kind of inactive, fearful, cowardly. When he's the king, this is his responsibility in a lot of ways. He makes these dumb, unhelpful rules up, and he, he's even willing to execute his son to follow through with that. And before the whole him executing his son thing, I still can really kind of sympathize with Saul. Like, I can, I, I can kind of go, man, that's a tough situation, right? I would have been one of the AWOL people, right? Like, that's like, so I can kind of go, okay, like, I, God, would you cut this guy some slack? And so I, can, I, I see myself in Saul Maybe more ways than I'd like to admit. Maybe I'm just more sinful than I'd like to admit. But what can, we, what can we learn from these chapters then? What can we learn from these chapters that describe Saul's failures? I think there's at least three things that we can learn. The first thing is this. Sometimes people that look good on the outside are inwardly a mess. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Sometimes people that look good on the outside are inwardly a mess. And I mean both kinds of looking good. Some of you, you just look good, okay? You got the right genetics or whatever, right? Some people like that, they just look good. Their hair's always did up right. They're wearing the right thing, all that kind of stuff. Sometimes those people that look good to us are inwardly a mess. Sometimes the other kind of looking good, those people are inwardly a mess too. The people that are kind of like socially, they're, they're with it. They've got it together. They've got the right house. They've got the right emotions displayed in public. They, they've just, they just externally, all of the external things you can see about them, they look good. And I think King Saul and God teaches us very often that those people sometimes are inwardly a mess. 
And I think this is really good for us to pay attention to because what we have to realize is that the external things that we do that make us look good, they do not matter at all if our hearts are corrupt, if our hearts are jacked up, if we're not dealing with things inside us that we need to be dealing with. But Anthony, I look good. I'm doing all the right things. It does not matter if your heart is jacked up, if your heart's messed up on the inside. It doesn't matter. Jesus says to a group of Pharisees, of religious leaders, he says to them, hey, you guys are a bunch of whitewashed tombs. What Jesus is saying there is he's talking about something they did in Israel. They still do it in Israel if you visit. They would paint the tombs white, give the tombs a fresh coat of white paint. I think it was just to make them look cleaner and nicer. And so when Jesus is saying to those religious leaders, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs, what he was saying to those religious leaders is, you guys look great on the outside. You guys got a fresh coat of paint on the inside, but inside you're decaying and spiderweb zone 3000. Like you're just a mess inside. You're a mess. And Jesus warned against that. And as we read 1 Samuel 13 and 14, I think Saul's life warns us about our own propensity to do that as well. Each of us have a propensity to try to look good rather than deal with what's going on in here, in our hearts, inside of us. Some of us need to hear that. Two, Two kind of groups, I think, in here in particular need to hear this from the Bible today. Uh, this message in general of, that we're whitewashed tombs at times. There's two groups of us. One group of us, we are kind of, constant, we are kind of constantly like striving and chasing that externally looking good. Like even here at church or at RC or wherever you go and you hang out with Christians, you're like, I got to look right. Like even sometimes I might lie about how often I've read my Bible or prayed this week or whatever. So I look good externally. And what I think is a beautiful grace of what we learn about Saul is you looking good on the outside does not matter. Stop chasing it. Stop running this rat race of looking good because that's what the world wants from you, right? Every human around you will say, I want you to look good externally, not internally. Some will say both. Some will say one more than the other. But the pressures of this world are look good to everyone around you. And most of us run a rat race to do it. Don't believe me? Why are braces a thing? Why do we all have to pay for braces for our kids now? I don't, like, sorry, that's a different, that's a different, that's a different sermon. But some of us are chasing looking good without ever caring what's on in this side. Stop chasing an external looking good. Start chasing the fruit of the Spirit. Start chasing the Spirit. Start examining your own heart and being honest with yourself. A second group in here that, that needs to hear this, and I, I feel like I fall into this group too much. Some of us in here need to hear that you are a whitewashed tomb. You are a whitewashed tomb. I wish that wasn't true. I wish there was nobody in here that was a whitewashed tomb. I wish I never lived as a whitewashed tomb. But Jesus said it, so I think we probably should pay attention to it. Some of us, we look so good religiously, spiritually, whatever, on the outside. But everywhere we go, we bring the fragrance of death. And and I I truly believe part of why Jesus said that is so that we would repent. So we would turn from that. I don't think Jesus was just like, you know what, I want to diss some Pharisees today. Like Jesus is like, I want you close to me. I want you to turn away from what's wrong 
and turn towards what's right. I want you to turn to God. Turn to me, Jesus would say. And so some of us are whitewashed tombs, and we just, we got to be honest with ourselves. Stop kidding ourselves. It's, I think it's far more freeing for both of those groups to live under the eyes of our loving Father in heaven who cares more about our own hearts than we do than it is to live under the trite values of culture, whether it's church culture or non-church culture, the trite values of looking good to the world. I would much rather live under the loving eyes of my Father who actually loves my heart and, lo- and loves me even when my heart is a mess. I'd rather live under that than just trying to convince everyone I'm not a mess. Making the purpose of your life just looking good to everybody, it will leave you soulless. It will leave you soulless. Your faith should not be a show for people to watch. Your faith should be an encounter, a wild encounter with the God of the universe. And that's going to lead you to places where you won't get applause at times. And that will hurt because of our flinches to want to look good externally. Our our faith should not be a show. Some of us that look good on the outside are are much more a mess on the inside than a lot of us would care to admit. I think we can learn that from Saul. Uh, The second thing I think we can learn from this passage, and I'll do this one quickly, and I don't know any better way to put this, and by don't know, I mean I didn't work hard enough to come up with a better way to put this, is, but I think you learn this in this passage is, don't pimp out God. Okay, a little PG-13 there. But don't pimp out God. There's a story at the beginning of Samuel that we didn't get to talk about because of how we structured the series. And there's this series of stories where essentially the people of Israel are facing the Philistines. Again, this is a different story. This isn't the Saul story. And the people of Israel say, okay, to face the Philistines, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant. Let's do this Indiana Jones thing to them. Like, let's bring it as kind of like this good luck charm, as this way that we're going to defeat the Philistines. And then what happens is God allows the Philistines to beat the Israelites. And God even allows the Philistines to take the Ark of the Covenant. This is like the most holy item in all of Israel. This is the manifest presence of God. But God was willing to let an enemy group of people take that covenant or that Ark of the Covenant in order to let Israel know a message that he can't be pimped out. And then Saul seemingly forgets recent history and he does the exact same thing. Ahijah, go get the Ark of the Covenant. It will be good luck. It will help us. It seems like what God wants to communicate to his people is don't use me for your success. Don't try to use me like a genie. Don't try to use me as a good luck charm. I'm not that. Church, you can't pimp out God. And I think that's an important message for all of us to hear because I know a lot of us, we come to church because it's some form of pimping God out. It's some form of hoping that if I do these right things or do these things, then God will bless me in these ways or he'll give me these things. And, 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 you're, and the reason you need to hear this message is because you're going to get disappointed with God very soon because he doesn't, look, he doesn't work like a good, good luck charm. He doesn't work like a genie. God is God. He's good. He'll bless you. He'll give you good things. But he doesn't work like a good luck charm. He's not here 
for what your perceived things, to, like for what you want out of life. He's got a grand, beautiful story he's telling of rescue, and he's inviting you into that. Too many of us, we have this relationship with God, very similar to Saul's relationship with God, where we want to use God to get us ahead in life, or to get us what we want out of life. And I just want to warn you, that way of relating to God will disappoint you in the end. Because God will not relate to you in the same way. So if you see that in yourself, begin to choose to relate to God in healthier ways. It's like, so a bunch of us, in moments like this, when I say things like this, it could be very, well, I do that, so maybe I'm not a Christian, or maybe I shouldn't be here anymore. No, that's not it. Just stop doing that. <laughs> like, just choose to relate to God in healthier ways. We all have a propensity to do that. I can't tell you how many prayers I make to God that's like, God, I'll do this if you do this, right? And that's wrong. That's, that's in all of us. But rather than just kind of be discouraged by that, go, okay, what are the healthier ways for me to relate to God, to realize who he is? He's not a genie in a bottle, okay? All right, the third thing that I think we can learn from this passage is this. God's grace is more evident in trust than in religious strivings. Okay, I'm going to say that again. God's grace is more evident in trusting him than in religious strivings toward him. The, the, the main kind of contrast we see with Jonathan and his father Saul is Jonathan seems to trust God, rely on him. Jonathan, again, I think he's foolhardy, but he trusts God. Whereas Saul, in the story, he seems to have a lot of fear, and he's cowardly, and he does all kinds of things out of that fear. And, and I think it's important for us to see that, that very often... This is kind of how we, re, we operate in our relationship with God. We, we strive religiously to get God's grace or love or whatever it is we want from God. And we do it by making sure we do all the right things or guilt-tripping ourselves about all the ways we aren't doing the right things. Or we try to live a very rigid life and we say this is the only way to God's blessing if we live this very rigid life. But I, if there's one thing I feel like I've been learning from Scripture over the last year and a half or so, and it's really relearning, is it really seems that God's grace is more evident to me in trust rather than religious striving. Now hear me, I'm not saying God's grace isn't, I'm not saying God's grace is only with one or the other. I'm actually just saying God's grace is more evident to me when I'm practicing trusting in him rather than practicing some sort of religious striving, hoping to get God to me. God's grace is more evident to me when I'm practicing trust. Here's what's crazy, is when you find your heart vacillating between trust or striving, you'll find very often you will do the exact same kind of thing or moral action or virtuous behavior. It will be the exact same thing, whether you're trusting God or whether you're religiously striving, and yet God's grace will be more or less evident, I think, to you, to yourself. Like you won't be able to see God's grace as easily in religious striving. Uh, do a little thought experiment with me right now. Take, uh, take any kind of virtue. Take anything you try to do. Like maybe it's like, I don't want to yell at my kids. Maybe uh, I want to be a better friend to this person. Whatever it might be. Take that thing and, and, and put it under an attitude and a posture of trusting God. 
And then also take that same exact thing and put it under a posture of striving religiously to get God to you or to prove yourself to God. And what you'll find is how you see grace, how you see God is totally different. When you're choosing to do something virtuous or good out of a trusting heart, out of a heart that's choosing to trust God and who he is and what he's done, what you're going to see is, is your, how you relate to God is even different. You're going to be kind of going, okay, God, I'm doing this because I trust you. I'm doing this because I'm believing you that this is what's right. I'm doing this because I'm believing that this thing that feels wrong to me in the moment is actually good for eternity. God, I'm trusting you that you're showing me what it means to be truly human, so that's why I'm doing this. God, I, I don't, I'm trusting you, God, because I don't even think I can succeed at doing this very often. I need to trust you almost and take your hand like you need to guide me in order for me to live this out. I just think God's grace is a lot more evident when that's how you're relating to God. If you're striving religiously, doing the exact same thing, you're going to see that virtue as some sort of like spiritual working out. You're going to see that you slip into pride and self-righteousness. You're going to see that you fall into people-pleasing. You're going to see your, you, you fall into chasing applause. Or you're going to see that you fall into burnout because it's so hard to strive that way. Or you're going to fall into giving up because it's so hard to strive that way religiously. Or you're going to strive into this, and this is so sad to me. A lot of us fall into thinking that God is only close to us when we have A plus spiritually. When we trust God, God's grace says, I'm close to you even when you've got an F spiritually. And God, sure, he'll say, I want to change some, th change some things about you, but I'm still close to you. That's what God's grace says. And so I just think God's grace is far more evident when we practice trusting him rather than religious striving. All throughout this story, it really seems like Saul is practicing religious striving. And he gets it wrong every single time. Church, we were made to trust God. We were made to relate to him. We were not made to prove ourselves to God. Can't be done. Right? It's like when my son's like, Dad, I'm fast. And he's like, watch, I could beat you in any race. And he like says stuff like that. I'm, I'm just inside, I'm like, no, you can't. I'm way faster than you. Like, I'm a good dad, so I don't say that. But sometimes I feel like that's how we relate to God, where we're just like, I'm doing all these things for you. Don't you love me? God's like, I love you because I'm your father. You don't have to strive. God's grace is just way more evident when we practice trusting him than religious striving. God loves you because he loves you. He's a gracious father inviting you to trust rather than to work off your debt. And so I think Saul's failures teach us a lot. I think they teach us that some of us are whitewashed tombs or we're at least chasing the paint for our tombs. I think, that, I think Saul's failures teach us that a lot of us relate to God but really by trying to manipulate God. And I think Saul's failures teach us that there's a, there's a better way to relate to God by giving God our hearts, right? One of the beauties of the gospel is the gospel is really God just proclaiming trust in me. Trust that my cross takes care of all evil and sin. Trust that my resurrection is the beginning of the restoration of all things. Trust that I am God incarnate. That's what the gospel, trust that the king of the universe has come close to you. 
trust to me is so much better. All of these things that we talked about, they each show us ways we can begin to relate to God in more healthy ways. Church, may we relate to God in those ways. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this true story of Saul's kingship. Thank you for being so gracious to us to help us to see ourselves in Saul. Thank you for speaking your word that way to us. God, right now I I feel like I know what you want to do. Like I know you want to do something here, but I don't know what it is. And so God, in this moment, as we reflect, as we pray right now, God, would would you send your spirit who's here with us already, and would you cause your spirit to work in us in all the ways you want to work in us? God, a lot of us have just really unhealthy ways of relating to you. Would you help us to trust instead? Would you help us to turn from those ways? Would you help us to get better? We can't do it on our own. But we want that because we think that's what you have for us, God. God, help us this morning to know you more, to relate to you more, to see how much you love us more. We love you, Lord. Amen.